Jeff Goulding, whose many books are, I was going to say, uploaded. Um, but yeah, uploaded to the shelves of the football library. There are six of them. Uh, Stanley Park Story, Life, Love and Merseyside Derby. Uh, his book with Jeff Scott, The Lost Shankly Boy, is fantastic. There's the Red Odyssey trilogy. And the new one, The Untouchables, Anfield's Band of Brothers. But we've, before we talk about that team, what's going on with the Albert Dock? Why isn't it a World Heritage Site and why should we be so concerned? So Liverpool was granted World Heritage status around 2008 because of its the significance of its port and buildings to mercantile history. Since then, there's this, been this real tussle in Liverpool between preserving heritage and redevelopment. Um, and, and for all the glory of the Three Graces, the, the Liver buildings, the Port of Liverpool building, and I can't remember the third one. The stadium? Um, mine's gone blank. For all the glory of, of the waterfront, there is a great deal of dereliction uh, there as well, a great, you know, a lot of old tobacco warehouses and cotton warehouses that have fallen into disrepair and need redevelopment, and the area around there needs redevelopment. So there's been a real sort of conflict, really, between trying to preserve the, the you know, the, the heritage, but also wanting to move Liverpool into a new modern era with new buildings and new developments. That's clashed with World Heritage people who who feel that, that the World Heritage status is threatened by this modernity. Liverpool has really taken the de- decision at government, local government level. The future of the city can't be held to ransom, you know, in order to keep what is effectively a title or a plaque on, on the wall. And it's a great shame that Liverpool has lost its World Heritage status, but the view, heritage status, but the view of the people of the city, I think, is summed up as you can take the title away, but for us, this is still a World Heritage mm-hmm. site. This is still one of the greatest cities in the world, one that we're all immensely proud of um, and will fight tooth and nail to defend. So, you know, that's that's the nub of it, I think. I think is Liverpool attempts to regenerate and redevelop itself has caused, you know, caused it to you know, fall foul, really, of people who want it to be preserved in some sort of time capsule forevermore. Um, and that, you know, that, that can't, that can't happen, I don't think. And, and so that's, that's at the heart of it. It's hilarious that the old mayor was called Joe Anderson and the new mayor is called... She's all Joanne Anderson. Joanne or Joe Anderson. Um, a non, a, a mix, of mixed heritage, but definitely Liverpudlian. Definitely Scouse. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, the first female mayor of Liverpool, the first first black mayor of Liverpool as well. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, huge, huge honour and achievement for her. Did she grow up uh, in Norris but, Green? Yeah, no. did, or did, did, did she grow um, up in Toxteth, rather? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure is the answer to that one. Liverpool's Liverpool local politics is uh, is is very complex and very complicated, and who knows where that's gonna where that's gonna lead us. But there is real sense in the city that I think I think Liverpool's always had a little bit of a a little bit of an outsider vibe to it. You know, there is a a chant and a banner on the cop, and and, and to a, to a lesser extent at Goodison as well, uh, a chant of Scouse, not English, and. You know the the vibe in the city is one that you know we're kind of more outward facing to the rest of the world than inward facing to the rest of England. Um, mm-hmm. And and I think you know attempts by Liverpool is a Labour city uh, has voted Labour fairly consistently. I think seventy eight percent of the population of the city voted Labour at the last election. 
uh, voted very heavily for Remain in the, in the in the referendum. But there's a real, I think there's a real sense in the city. Uh, it's my perception. This there's a real sense in the city that the National Labour Party and the national government don't really get the city and are really on our side. An issue over Joe Anderson and the imposition of government officers, um, effectively Tory government officers uh, on the city, supported by the National Labour Party, has kind of led to a bit of a rift. Um, and it'd be really interesting, I think, to see how politically that, that develops and pans out in the common months and years and whether Liverpool will remain uh, a staunchly loyal Labour uh, city or whether some new movement might emerge. Yes, um, given that Bolsover is now Tory, um, Red Car is now Tory, and this is astonishing, but this is this just, it's a new Britain that we have, obviously, since 2016. Well, I would have to say that the, 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 you may not have wanted to talk to me about politics, but uh, <laughs> I would have to say the idea that Liverpool would go Tory is, I can't ever imagine that happening. Well, what if, um, here's, here's what I think. If Gary Neville starts a political party, people will vote for it. Right. It, they, it, they might not, they won't vote Conservative. But even in Liverpool, if you've got people like Hendo, Gary Neville, standing with, I don't know, a David Richards or, or a figure fr- who knows how to deal with money, um, I think people would vote for that. Obviously, no, um, no Liverpudlian is going to vote for... Um, the Tory party, you said that Hillsborough is the wound the establishment won't allow to heal. Uh, they'd vote for Andy Burnham. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think people are more sophisticated than that, in all honesty. Um, and I think in Liverpool we've developed... I mean, people call us whingers. Our image has gone from being the cheeky scouts of the 60s to being the kind of militants, won't stand for any nonsense, always complaining type of thing. And, and I think I think that's a misunderstanding of, of the people of Liverpool, really. I think... I think it's not so much about being victims and whingers. It's more about we've, we've had enough of what we see as injustice and we're not prepared to tolerate that from either side, really. So if there's a perception that someone is taking the piss, uh, excuse the language, um, then Liverpool, the Liverpool people won't put up with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what other people call whinging and moaning and never letting it go we just call standing up for ourselves. And I think it would take more than a, you know, a Jordan Henderson to stand, you know, or a Jürgen Klopp to stand. We've become quite good in Liverpool at seeing through phonies. Hicks and, and Gillette. Yeah, I think we... And, and so, yeah, so that's a really good point, isn't it? Because, you know, we... Fool us once, shame on, shame on you. Fool us twice, shame on us. We won't, you know, we won't... We won't fall victim to that anymore. And, you know, there's an, there's an enormous tenacity in the city. I mean, to, to campaign on something for 30 years, to, you know, through generations, to boycott a newspaper for 30 years through multiple generations takes enormous tenacity, in my view. And, um, and so I think, you know, whoever emerges, you know, if there is an alternative on the left that emerges, they, you know, they're going to have to be authentic. And so, yeah, I mean, Andy Burnham, I think, comes across as very authentic. And also his association with, with the Hillsborough Inquiry yeah. will stand him in good stead. But, but he's going to have to stand for something. But, um, of course, Andy Burnham, that great outsider, great outsider who was um, a spad and went to Oxford and did PPE. The great outsider, it's like Nigel Farage, the great outsider who was a banker and went to Dulwich College. Not to compare Burnham and Farage's politics, but just they're in, they're in the system, 
but they've also got the crowd on side. I think Jurgen Klopp has done John Henry and, and Fenway a lot of favours. You've conquered it. You've conquered it. You've written about it in We Conquered All of Europe and Champions Under Lockdown. You've written about how John Henry has made mistake after mistake after mistake. You talk about the £77 to sit in the Dalgleish stand. What will it take? Will it just take a couple of home defeats for the crowd to suddenly switch away from Fenway and Klopp? Because don't forget... European Super League, Project Big Picture, what they're doing in the boardroom is not very, very football. It's not cricket. I, as I say, I do, I do think people, and I think football supporters are more sophisticated than we, than we give them credit for. I think there's a recognition amongst the majority of match-going supporters that the club is in a much more stable position than it was in the past. Uh, we're winning things again. We've got a world-class manager, a world-class squad. Uh, the stadium's being redeveloped. The training base has been redeveloped. You know, Fenway have done a lot of good things. They've made some ridiculous mistakes, in my opinion, and a series of them. It's not just the £77 or the Super League. You know, the, the attempt to uh, copyright the live bird, the attempt Nonsense. to uh, trademark the word Liverpool when used in a, uh, a football context. These are the furlough, uh, furlough decision. These are, these are foolish decisions, you know, um, you know that, that that really show a lack of insight into their what they would call their customer base, what we would call uh, the lifeblood of the club. You know they clearly haven't understood the mentality of the club or the city. Uh, and if you did understand the mentality of the club and the city, you would not embark on those those ventures. Um, I, I think I think more repeats of that would would probably seal their fate in the eyes of Liverpool supporters. I think there is, an, I wrote an open letter to John Henry, which was which was published on This Is Anfield uh, around the time of the Super League. And, and what I said at the end, really, was that there is, there, is, there is an opportunity for salvation for him and for FSG if they now become part of the change that football needs. So if they now lead on that, you know, so, and what I'm talking about is greater involvement of supporters in the decision-making around their clubs. Um, and you know they have they have started on that journey, um, and they are talking to supporters groups like Spirit of Shankly, and we are now seeing the outline of a plan to have supporters influencing decision making at board level, which would be huge, which would be historic uh, in the history of the club. Um, and I think if they if they carry on down that road, then there is hope for FSG. Uh, we can look at what they've done, their achievements at the club, but then we can say, well, what they also did was was transform. The relationship between the supporters and the club. I mean, people always talk about Shankly. Always talk about the famed Holy Trinity: the players, the manager, and the supporters. And the board don't really come into it. They just sign the checks. In fact, he said they don't sign. He said um, they, the checks are blank. We write them. And what that hints at for me is that actually the board have never been part of it. Really, they're just sort of on the periphery, distant and remote. And I think if, if FSG were able to make them cells or make the board a meaningful part of the what they call the Liverpool family, then that would be a huge achievement by them. So they could, you know, have us as one club with everyone pulling in the same direction. That was Shankly's vision, everyone sharing in the rewards. Then that there is hope for them. I think mm-hmm. they could they could emerge as good you know, be regarded in the future as great owners of the club. But if they carry on making these, you know, decisions based on monetization and money then their, their fate will, will be sealed. Yeah, of course, they'll say without the money, we couldn't bring Klopp, we couldn't bring Salah. But 
I don't well, think... it's always it's always a fine line, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, what I would say is, yes, football needs money, but it's finding that balance between monetizing the brand but not selling out the soul of the club. Yeah, maybe like the Rolling Stones are a good model. The Rolling Stones have never sold out. They copyrighted the logo, and they're still touring. And and maybe I can uh, I can compare Liverpool to Rolling Stones because in about 1990, the Rolling Stones became a stadium superstar rock band. And Liverpool were um, coming to the end of the domestic dominance, sadly, after that six-year ban. That must have been really effing annoying, not being able to see any European football for six years. I don't know if you were at Heisel. Yeah, I wasn't at that game. But no. you know people who were? Um, yes, absolutely, of course, yeah. I mean, that was, for me, you know, there's been a number of very dark periods in Liverpool's history. Obviously, Heisel and Hillsborough are the worst moments in our history for very different reasons. You know, I remember feeling, you know, great shame and, and horror, really. Uh, I watched it unfold on a television screen in my mum and dad's house. And just the, the thought that people could die. I mean, there have been other tragedies at other clubs, but I wasn't aware of them at the time. The thought that people would go to a football match and die. Yeah. Just, you know, I couldn't couldn't get my head around that at all. And the fact that we were involved in it, I think people forget that prior to that, Liverpool supporters had a... You know, really good reputation around Europe. There have been incidents of various games earlier in in in, in Rome and things like that where there have been attacks on Liverpool supporters. But by and large, Liverpool supporters had a, a good reputation around Europe, and I was quite proud of that. You know, we were this European team that was revered around the around the world and and, and seen in a very positive way. And then all of a sudden, we we were associated with this horrific event that cost people their lives, people who'd only gone to a football match. And that was awful. And that, that for me, is, is far worse than any ban that ensued. Yes. But but the ban undoubtedly had a huge impact on... It had an impact in so many ways. It had an impact on, on football, generally speaking, um, because it wasn't just Liverpool who were now robbed of European football. Well, it was Everton. Um, but it, it, yeah, but mm. it was Everton, yes. And, of course, Heisel is, is a, a scar that has undoubtedly blighted the relationship between Liverpool and Everton supporters. The derby was a... It's never been a friendly derby. There's always needle in the derby, you know. But by and large, Liverpool and Everton supporters got along just fine. We could sit next to each other at a match and we could shout and scream, but we could be mates afterwards. But there's a there's an undertone, and, a, and I wrote about this in Stanley Park's story, really, is that it's multifactorial, of course, everything is, but... Well, Heysel is, is, is a huge wound for Everton supporters. And as they, they have, the, the years between them being successful and, and not, you know, have grown, so too is the kind of idea that they were robbed of any chance of becoming a really great big club by, by the band. They, they feel that the side that they had would have gone on yeah. to, to success in Europe. Imagine Neville really... Southall against that AC Milan team. I think Everton would have had a chance. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think they, they were a great side. We can't say they would have definitely won the European Cup, but they had a great chance of winning uh, the European Cup in that period. They had a really great side, and the band robbed them of mm-hmm. that. And, and, of course, for some Evertonians, uh, you know that that's a, a bitter pill to swallow. And it's undoubtedly soured relations between the two clubs. I mean, David Prentice wrote magnificently about about it and he feels that segregation is, is, is a real significant factor there as well so 
Whereas we had the self-censoring and the self-policing that went on at derby matches because you were sat next to Evertonians. Now they're crammed into one corner of the stadium and there's a real them and us vibe. You know, there's always heavy policing, which I always think is a bit, you know, unnecessary. And it kind of sets up this this real bitter rivalry between the two sets of supporters, which never existed when I was a when I was a kid. Uh, we would just went the match together. We stood next to each other. Did the same uh, Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then met each other in work on Monday or mm-hmm. school on Monday. Uh, or, or actually went home to the same house. Oh, precisely. Um, I've got this great idea. Yeah. I, I don't know if you would commission this, but Remainers are the home team. The Brexiters are away. You put a football match on between, I don't know, Remain FC and Brexit FC, and you play that out, and you realise that what the debates are today over the vaccines and everything else. It's it's what James O'Brien, whom I don't know if you listen to on LBC, calls the footballification of society. Um, and it's true. If you've got a blue scarf, you will shout and scream no matter what the blues do. The, the reds are saying, come on, see with your own eyes. They're kicking the ball into their own goal. Yeah, but go on the blues. Um and, of course, I would love to set you up with Johnny Nick. John Nicholson is our librarian at the Football Library, and he's at the front desk. And uh, any socialist or scouser or northeasterner who comes in, uh, he will delight in having a big, long chat. Uh, he's a prolific, prolific author. Uh, Johnny Nick, who writes for Football 365, have you read his wonderful pieces? I'm, a f- I'm ashamed to say I haven't, but now I will investigate and, uh, have, and, and seek them out and have a look at them. Oh, just because the way you talks about you talk about society, Johnny talks about. He's more hippie-ish. He lives on a like, cross right. in in Fife. Um, right. Okay. But um, yeah, this um, the Liverpool season. You've got Van Dijk back. You've signed this new centre back, Konate, who's obviously going to take Matip's place because they realise he's made of glass. But coming through, you've got Curtis Jones. You've replaced Ginny Vinealdon with Harvey Elliott, and this is the Harvey Elliott season. And I just before we talk about the Untouchables a hundred years ago, this team, um, this youth team, which lost the Youth Cup final last year, two years ago, the class of 2019 won the trophy, following in the footsteps of the likes of David Thompson. And Jamie Cassidy of 96 and Stephen Darby and Jay Spearing in 2006-2007. Do you follow what's going on in the under-18s under the great Alex Inglethorpe? I do, yeah. I do take uh, I do take notice of what's going on there. And I do... One of the things that I think most of us love about Jürgen Klopp is he will, he will give young players a chance. Some of the changes that have gone on behind the scenes in terms of merging the first team and the youth teams together in one location... Uh, having the youth players training with the first team, uh, I think that's starting to bear fruit. Curtis Jones, I've been an admirer of him from his days playing in the youth the youth teams. You could see straight away that there was a rawness to him, but he had this attitude that he wasn't phased by anything, um, that he was a winner. I loved an interview he gave after a game, I think it was last season, where he said, it's been a bad week for me because I, I wasn't in the team. Um, you know that attitude about him, where he, you know, he believes he should be in the team. He has a right to be in the team, and but every time I've seen him given his chance in the first team, he's never let anyone down. He's never looked out of place. Harvey Elliott looks an absolute talent. I still think Nico Williams has got something. I think he can go on and do well. Hopefully at Liverpool, but if not at Liverpool, he can have a good career mm-hmm. at the top level. And there's a new lad come through, Kate Gordon. Scored in a behind closed doors game in midweek against Aston Villa. 
he looks at a talent, Trent Alexander. I saw an interview with Trent Alexander Arnold where he said he described him as frightening. Um, his talent was frightening. So I think there's a lot of really good kids coming through, which might actually end up, and the, the modern supporters want us to go out and buy, you know, big name players for tens of millions of pounds. But I really do think the club thinks if he can bring one or two of them through, saves the club a fortune. But also you've got someone who's inculcated in the club, who's been at the club since they were young and is just part of the fabric and will fight and will be loyal to the club. Um, and that's much, much better than going out and spending £100 million on a player, I agree. in my the opinion. Prob- I would rather have one of our own come through. And Alexander-Arnold or Jamie Carragher coming through and Stephen Gerrard coming through and winning the European Cup, for me, is better than us signing uh, Mbappe. And yeah, Torres, Suarez, pretty good. But Michael Owen, when yeah. he came on, I remember the Michael Owen FA Cup final. You were probably there in Cardiff. Um, yeah. Frightening, completely frightening. I remember yeah. watching the 98 game where he put Pochettino on his arse and then injuries caught up yeah. with him and he's now into horses and boring analysis. <laughs> um, but have you seen... Uh, you mentioned Harvey Elliott and Curtis Jones. Have you seen a talent as striking as Michael Owen at Liverpool? That's a really good question. A player at that level, uh, a Michael Owen or a Robbie Fowler, for that matter. No, they're they're quite unique talents, aren't they? They're quite, you know, they come along. Stephen Gerrard's the same, isn't he? They're they're players who come along every now and again, where they've already got everything they need uh, to be a great player. And the only thing standing in the way is is hard work, really. They keep up the hard work and they keep doing as they're told and they keep learning. Uh, the players who are coming through now look look like great players, but they look like they you know they'll, they'll benefit from the coaching they'll get um, and the guidance they'll get. But, but I saw an interview with Steve Highway where he was talking about Michael Owen and he was talking about Stephen Gerrard, and he was saying we didn't teach them anything; they just had it. They were just they, they, it was natural; it was in them. And all we could do was keep them on the straight and narrow and support them and, and create an environment around them where they could be successful. Um, so no, I don't. I think I have. I'll probably finish this interview and think of someone, but at that level, where they've already got everything they need as soon as they step onto the pitch, I, no, I don't think I've seen anyone yeah. like that for a while. And uh, the player who brought Michael Owen through was Gerard Houllier, so can we have 10 seconds on the greatness of the late Gerard, who was brilliant at Clairefontaine and bringing in all the French team? I mean, his success brought through the players who won the World Cup in 98. Yeah, I absolutely love Gerard Houllier. That that 2000-2001 season was one of the greatest seasons I've ever experienced as a Liverpool supporter. Uh, they won five trophies in a single calendar year. What you have to think about is Liverpool, prior to Julio coming along, were a team in, in seeming terminal decline, uh, still down and out on past glories, not playing great football, and not really seeming to have a, a clue about how to arrest the decline, never mind move forward. And all around us, we were seeing Arsenal, the Arsenals, the Chelsea's, the Man United's just racing ahead. And then Julio comes in and, and just transforms everything. He just lifts lifts everyone. And once again, you know, you could start to dream realistically that Liverpool would, would be back in the big time. I mean, the, the cop chance, who let the Reds out? Julio, you know, that, that said it all for me, really. He took Liverpool, you know, in a really bad place and in the same way that Shankly did it to a lesser degree because Shankly started from a lower lower base 
he did transform the club. He was a transformative leader for Liverpool. He, he, he was involved in the redesign and improvements to Melwood. He changed the players' diets. He changed the, their lifestyles. He was the guy who could put his arm around them, but also he could be ruthless as well. He divided opinion within the club, the likes of Steve Highway, you know, reading between the lines, they didn't get on very well. Steve Highway disputes Gerard's claim that he discovered Stephen Gerard and Michael Owen. He'd already been developed within within the Liverpool Academy system. But anyway, you know, Julier was a man with an emotional attachment to the city. He'd worked there in the sixties as a school teacher at Allsop School. But he was also someone who got the mentality of the club, who got the spirit of the club. But he was ruthless operator in terms of turning it around and transforming it. And I just love the quote that, that's attributed to him. In fact, it's not attributed to him. I saw him say it. Whereas if you, you know, if you go out your way to help someone out, it always pays you back in the end. And there was lots of journalists when he passed away who talked about, you know, how how he'd, he'd helped them out and he'd given them given them stories and given them interviews and helped them up on on their careers. And there's lots of players who say the same. Jamie Carragher, I interviewed Jamie Carragher for This Is Anfield, and he absolutely adores Gerard Houllier above anyone he's worked with. Um, you know, he credits Gerard Houllier with his career in football. He said, I wouldn't have lasted anywhere near as long as I did if it wasn't for that man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just think he was a wonderful, wonderful Liverpool manager who was exactly what we needed when he arrived, and he delivered fantastic success and huge amounts of joy to the city um, and you'll always be remembered fondly I think on Merseyside. There are so many books about Liverpool Football Club A because they sell and thus make money for the publisher and B so many talented writers. Uh, only Middlesbrough I think has the same kind of quotient of great writers Johnny Nick, Danny Gray, Harry Pearson, uh, Tom Flight and so on. Interesting. Liverpool have got Tony Evans, his book Two Tribes, uh, Paul Denoy's book absolutely. Wondrous Place which is about the music of the city which is superb I remember reading that actually on the Albert Dock uh, Daniel Fields ends book called Local is as much about the city as the club Simon yeah. Hughes has written loads of books Peter Hooten wrote the song All Together Now and he's if you cut him he bleeds red Peter Hooten yeah absolutely yeah you um, won't find a bigger Shankly devotee than Peter Hooten I must have him in because it's now it's over 30 years since All Together Now was a big hit but when it comes to books, Jeff Goulding, your six, which includes Red Odyssey, I imagine Houllier is talked about in that. Yes. Yeah. But the new one, which, and I'm conscious I've only given five minutes for this book, but I don't know, I've got a suspicion you'll be doing other interviews to promote this book, maybe to some <laughs> Liverpool <laughs> publications. Where, where can we find um, interviews about the Untouchables, Anfield's Band of Brothers. Will you be giving an interview to like these Football Times or something? Absolutely, yeah. So I've already, I mean, what's What's absolutely blown me away is I thought we were... I mean, my, our mission really was was to bring their story back to life. We, we were... Kieran and I were really worried and concerned that their achievements would fade from view. And, and the more we read about these guys, um, the more we realised that they're just wonderful characters with absolutely amazing backstories that we just couldn't allow them to fade into obscurity. And when we started doing the research and, and putting the feelers out for information, um, appealing for family members to come forward, we were inundated with offers of help and support and a huge amount of interest. So, yeah, I've already got interviews set up with Redmen TV, These Football Times, This Is Anfield, obviously, 
Um, the Echo. A number of different outlets. Uh, Liverpool, uh, David Prentice, the Liverpool Echo, who's going to read the book and he's offered, he's offered um, to support and, and do a piece about the book. So, I mean, this is, this is one of the truly great Liverpool teams in the history of the club. Um, won back-to-back titles, the first team in Liverpool's history to, to do that. But as much as they were great from a football perspective, their lives are so rich. Oh, yeah. um, several of them fought in, in World War One. Two of them sustained wounds. One of them, quite serious, he almost died. And they came back after the war and didn't just sort of resume lives or, you know, build families, but they then went on to be elite sportsmen uh, who were regarded in the football world as, as the pinnacle. They were, they were dubbed the untouchables by the media. You know, the book is as much about the origin of that great team, the backstories of the players, the context and the environment they lived in. So there's a lot in there about Liverpool at the turn of the uh, 20th century and the evolution of the club, which several of them, there's a number of them who were born in the city. They were kind of born around the time the club was formed. So they literally grew up with the club alongside the club. And, you know, we've uncovered quite a lot of detail uh, about their lives, in particular their military records, which we know Liverpool Football Club don't have that information. So our, our research this group will improve the club's awareness and knowledge of these great players uh, and their legacy. So it's been such a labour of love and a great experience research, working with a great historian, football historian in Kieran, uh, who runs the Liverpool FC Historical Society, uh, Historical Group on Facebook. You know, he's absolutely passionate about the pre-Shankly era. era. Uh, it's been great working with him and seeing, you know, seeing a real historian at work. Because I'm a storyteller, essentially. Obviously, have to do research, but I'm primarily a storyteller. Whereas Kieran is meticulous in terms of detail and great. his ability to uncover and unearth things is is incredible. So, I think we have fulfilled our mission, which is to bring them back to life and make them three-dimensional characters as opposed to just you know numbers and stats in a book uh, and i think i think modern supporters will love to hear about their stories you, you make me want to talk to him so I, I don't know if you're doing all the press or if kieran is doing some of the oh, press. you really should speak to kieran you absolutely should speak to kieran good go away um, um, <laughs> i will i will i will have to only because it's, i'm conscious that because i try and keep these to about an hour and a bit and you've just given one paragraph. We haven't even mentioned how Elisha Scott was one of eight children, how Walter Wadsworth's mum was committed to an asylum, uh, how Jock McNabb was a boxer, exactly how Dave Ashworth, the manager, became not the manager of Liverpool. So I will have to continue this conversation. I might actually put it on the same day uh, because Kieran Smith is the historian for Liverpool FC and this band of brothers and the pictures that I've seen, because you, you write about a lot of these characters on This Is Anfield, um, telling the stories of these untouchables from a hundred years ago. And I just hope you t- turn this into a film script. I'm already seeing Paul Mescal somehow as Elisha Scott. You've got to get an Irishman in goal. Paul Mescal's hot, hot, hot. It would be uh, worthy of a film. No doubt at all. Um, I've got to just say on the photographs, if I've got time, we, we, we owe a huge debt of gratitude to the surviving family members. So we were able to contact eight or nine surviving family members, descendants of the untouchables who've got you know a treasure trove of caps, medals, 
photographs, uh, newspaper clippings, um, and that was hugely helpful in putting the book together. And what you've seen uh, on this as Anfield is but a tiny um, wow. microcosm of what we've got in the book in terms of the photographs. Um, we've got some incredible photographs in the book. Uh, and we were also lucky enough, one of the family members, the family members of Tom Bromelow, a uh, local lad from Kirkdale who went on to captain the team, he he is um, an artist and he restored many of the photographs which were in quite bad condition. And some of them were colourised as well. So I think we really will give you a very vivid portrait of this team, the city and the club during that period, and not only in words but in imagery as well. Well, the book is out September 20th, so uh, we're talking 17th of August. Kieran Smith and Jeff Gordon, The Untouchables, Anfield's Band of Brothers. Great cover. Uh, my book about the FA Youth Cup. Uh, the cover's been designed. It's got Robbie Savage on it. I hope that doesn't put anyone off. But uh, I don't know who designed it. Was it Duncan who designed your cover? Duncan Olner, yeah. Um, Duncan Olner Duncan is uh, an absolute genius, I think. You know, all the covers, all of the books I've written, um, the covers, have, I've been absolutely delighted with the covers. Uh, but I have to say, I think this is the best of all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, just, it's really evocative and it really captures, I think, the era uh, and the time. I'm absolutely over the moon with it. And as I say, I think he's a genius. And the final question before I let you go off and, I don't know, write another book? Um, <laughs> is um, or, or another piece for another piece for This Is Anfield? Are the club going to celebrate the centenary of this first division championship win? Yes, they are. Um, so, Kieran and I, and a number of other Liverpool supporters, actually, to be fair, uh, are already in contact with with the club. Um, I'd have to, I, I acknowledge him in the book. I have to acknowledge the help and support of Mark Platt, who's producer Liverpool. Uh, LFC TV, Stephen Doan, who's the club's museum and curator, Johnny Stockland, who is the club's ar- official archivist. Um, you know, we've, we're already talking to the club about how we might commemorate this. And I know LFC TV are working on that behind the scenes as well. And I have some some surprises planned, uh, which I think the families will be absolutely delighted with. Uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, this is the, the first of the two championships, the first centenary of the two championships uh, 21-22 I'm hoping over the next two seasons we can really celebrate them I know that the club are uh, expanding the Anfield Road End and then there'll be discussions about what they do at the back of the Anfield Road End in terms of honouring former players so there's nothing set in stone no pun intended pun intended Uh, but I, I you know I will be I will be lobbying for for those men to be honoured in some way uh, at the back of the new stand so yeah I, the club is very supportive and have really helped us out um, and, and hopefully we will help them out too so we will shed some light um, on the club's history for them that will hopefully enhance you know their museum offer um, as well I've walked past Liverpool's corporate office in Euston Tottenham Court Road. I will get a copy from the Waterstones on Tottenham Court Road when it comes out, the Untouchables, Anfield's Band of Brothers. Knock on the door, uh, see whoever's in. You know this? They're actually based in, like Man U are based in Mayfair. Liverpool's corporate office yes, is Yes, I Houston. didn't know they had a corporate office down south. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. But yes, I, I hope that John Henry can read the Untouchables, as well as your other five books, but... 
I don't know. He's 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 trying to organise Project Big Picture too. He's try, he's got other things on his belt. He's not going to listen to a cop ender uh, and have a wonderful season. Enjoy the Burnley game this weekend. Sing until you're hoarse. Thank you. Uh, and yeah, Jeff Goulding uh, is the latest of several Liverpudlians. Liverpudlian or Scouse? Uh, yeah, I call myself a Scouser. Scouser, proper Scouser. You might have some Scouse yeah. for lunch. I can't because I'm kosher. <laughs> yes!